Well, what's the most impressive resume you can imagine? Maybe it's replete with the accomplishments of someone who runs a large organization that employs 250 people. Someone whose voice is known across the world because it's broadcast over uh, 2,000 outlets in 32 countries. Someone who has a wide-ranging influence. Maybe it's the resume of someone who's written an awful lot of books and is lectured at the world's most prestigious universities. Maybe it's the resume of a sought-after speaker who has graced the stage before military audiences, academics, government leaders, including parliament. Maybe it's the resume of someone who's accumulated no less than 10 honorary doctorates, someone who's regarded as a champion of the Christian faith, on whose ministry the souls of thousands are said to depend. Who knows, maybe it's even the resume of someone whose international organization has a humanitarian arm, whose central goal is to relieve at-risk children and women affected by poverty, disaster, and human trafficking. Well, probably that's not your resume, but wouldn't it be quite something to have one like it? Well, what I've just outlined for you is, in fact, the resume of the recently deceased celebrity apologist, Ravi Zacharias. If that name sounds familiar to you, perhaps it's because you have read one of his books, or you've listened to one of his talks, or you've found intellectual buttressing for your faith in the ministry which bears his name. It may also sound familiar because last September, allegations of sexual abuse were brought against him. And on Thursday, the ministry bearing his name published the report of an independent investigation which determined that those allegations were true beyond any reasonable doubt. The report says that likely for decades, Zacharias sexually abused women, using his influence and power to silence them, all the while embezzling vast sums of money to perpetuate his abuse. Now here's the thing. Ravi Zacharias had a dazzling resume. And I know because I worked through it line by line in my sermon preparation. But the shocking thing is that it amounts precisely to nothing. Now you might want to quibble with me here and say, surely even the most villainous person can have achieved something. Surely something will stand up as of lasting value. Well, not if we believe the Christian tradition. I don't mean that his books can't be read to some prophet or his talks can't be heard uh, to our use. A friend likes to remind me that even Balaam's ass spoke truth. But as an index of the worth of his life before a holy God, Ravi Zacharias's resume is dust. Why? Because Ravi Zacharias 
we have every reason to believe, lacked the one thing needful. St. Augustine, the great church father, put it this way. Unprofitably hath he all who wants that one thing whereby he should use all. In other words, the most dazzling resume dissolves to ash if it lacks the one thing needful. And of course, Augustine is in good company here because St. Paul, of course, had said exactly the same thing. Even the most dazzling resume, if it lacks the one thing needful, amounts to nothing. And that one thing needful, we learned in our epistle reading this morning that Lindy read beautifully for us, that one thing is love. Not the love of affection, not the love of romance, not even the love of friendship, but that specific kind of love, which in the Greek is called agape, and which older English translations render accurately and beautifully charity. Charity means more than almsgiving. Charity refers to the love by which one loves the unlovable. Without that love, Paul says, I am nothing. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 and look with me at verses 1 to 3. Here, again, is an, an impressive resume, okay? Let's just go through it. Undergraduate degree in tongues of men and angels, Yale University, 1982 to 1986. Masters in prophetic powers, MIT, 1990. Understanding mysteries, PhD, Harvard, 1995. Grasping all knowledge, postdoctoral fellowship, Oxford University, 1998. Miraculous mountain moving, Early career with a tech startup, San Francisco, 2000. Sacrificial giving, time, person of the year, 2002, 2006, and 2011. And finally, most impressively of all, martyrdom by fire, 2021. But all of this, Paul says, impressive, isn't it? All of it is nothing. Despite all that this person that Paul is uh, imagining here in 1 Corinthians 13 has to boast, the resume lacks the one thing which would have made all the other gifts of any use at all. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, charity, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Without charity, that particular love without which one cannot love the unlovable, the kind of love that we might call gospel love. I am nothing. Now many of us have heard this famous passage recited publicly, right? And you have heard it at a wedding, right? It's one of the ones that Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson joke about in Wedding Crashers as sure to be heard at a wedding, right? That's the occasion that most of us associate this famous passage with. But for many Christians down through the ages, 
this passage was most commonly associated not with weddings, but with this particular Sunday, the final Sunday before the season of Lent begins. See, this Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, is Ash Wednesday, when Christians around the world begin a six-week season of fasting, of self-denial, of repentance, of preparation. Because Lent is a pilgrimage to the cross and through it to resurrection on Easter Sunday. Well, today, for many Christians down through history, uh, today is what they called Quinquagesima Sunday. Gina said, bless you. Quinquagesima, which simply means the Sunday roughly 50 days before Easter. It was the last of three consecutive Sundays which prepared Christians to enter Lent. And the reason that they returned to this passage every year on this day, fascinatingly, was because we all need to be reminded every year that the absolute precondition of Lent, the crucial thing, which determines whether Lent is going to help us or whether Lent is going to hurt us, is whether we will have entered the season of Lent as those who have received the gift of charity, gospel love, love for the unlovable. This Sunday, in other words, is the final fork in the road before Lent. It forces us to choose whether we will press on in the way of charity through the cross to resurrection or whether we will continue drifting into the spiritual cul-de-sacs of our own little gods. Now, I want to underline what I just said. I said either or. Lent will be either a help or a hindrance, either a gift or a threat. What Lent won't be is something in between. Lent is a season of repentance. It's a season of fasting and prayer. It's modeled on the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. It's a season of discipline. And like all forms of Christian discipline, Lent is susceptible to moralism. It's vulnerable to being an appendage of religion rather than an instrument of the gospel. And so we remind ourselves as we return to these ancient paths that prior to the practice of Christian discipline must be this either-or question. Christianity is an either-or religion. We aren't meliorists. That is, we don't think uh, that we improve bit by bit, that uh, good and evil are a sliding scale, that we move along horizontally. No, Christianity says either we have gospel love, love that loves the unlovable, or we don't. Either we've received the gift of charity or we haven't. It really does. That's the basis on which we are counted, either living or dead before God. And if you think I'm making it up, you prayed it earlier. We prayed it together in our collect. Oh, Lord, you have taught us that without love, all our deeds are worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity, the true bond of peace and of all virtues, without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. So this morning I want to do a very simple thing. As Christians have done for centuries, I want to call us to inspect our hearts before we depart for Golgotha. 
And I want to call us to use Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 in order to do so. Now, this was originally a much longer sermon, and I was going to spend some time working in an expository way through 1 Corinthians 13, encouraging us to ask three questions. I wound up deciding that I would be better off simply giving you the three questions and sending you a way to do your homework. I'll be doing it too. Here are the three questions that we need to use as we sit down with 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this afternoon over tea or coffee or a glass of wine this night, uh, tonight. Number one, am I cleaving to what is good? Number two, am I fleeing from what is evil? And number three, Am I persevering in one and two? It's a bit like the rules for Fight Club, kind of self-referential. Am I cleaving to what is good? Am I fleeing from what is evil? Am I persevering in both? Now, the thing is, look, understand that none of us are going to make it unscathed if we sit down and we compare our lives to Paul's description of love. And that's because none of us is the Lord Jesus. But those of us who trust in Christ, those of us who belong to him, we should see in Paul's description of love a shadowy representation of our own lives. Now let me give you two cautions as you undertake this self-examination. Caution number one. No Christian captures this description perfectly. The whole course of the Christian life is what we might call baptismal therapy. The daily course of treatment begun when we were baptized. If you want a good baptismal theology, here it is. In baptism, the old Adam was drowned in you. And you became alive in Christ, the second Adam. Now the trouble is that that old Adam is a good swimmer. So every day, we have to drown him again so that Christ's image can be renewed in us. That's baptismal therapy. That's the whole course of the Christian life. And it's why Paul's description of love is at best only a partial description of your life. But a partial description it should be. For as Paul says elsewhere, it is Christ in us which is the hope of glory. His image is being renewed in us day by day as we die to sin and live to God. And therefore, this description of charity is truly, but not exhaustively, accurate of every Christian in whom Christ's image is being renewed. Okay, that's caution number one. Here's caution number two. Ultimately, like the questions from any textbook, using Scripture in a diagnostic way to see where you are, is imperfect. Because as any physician will tell you, diagnostic questions only go so far. What you really need in order to make a a, a truly informed diagnosis is an understanding of the patient's medical history. One of the characteristics of COVID-19 that makes it such a nefarious virus is its ability to capitalize on your particular weaknesses, to exploit your soft spots, as it were. Which is one reason uh, I think I'm right in saying that both the experience and the aftermath of the virus look so different for different people. 
Well, it's the same here. The thing to remember as you work through 1 Corinthians 13 in this diagnostic way to prepare yourself for Lent, the thing to remember uh, is your spiritual history. Have I been ransomed by Christ? Did he start a good work in me? Because I know that the one who started a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Have I been baptized into Christ's death and so been made alive together with Christ? Have I received the gift of his spirit who's united me with Christ by faith and testifies inwardly to my adoption as his daughter or as his son? These questions about your spiritual history are the questions in light of which the diagnostics of 1 Corinthians 13 can operate effectively in your life this afternoon or tomorrow uh, or Tuesday. So I want to ask you, as you ponder these things in the quiet of your heart, does your conscience bear witness to the presence of these marks of gospel love, charity in your heart? If so, I mean, even if only partially, even in the faintest degree, then rejoice in that, brothers and sisters. Give God thanks because that actually shows you that God is near to you. He's communicating the love that he is to you, refashioning you in his image. If, on the other hand, you do not recognize Paul's description as even elementally true of your life. If you look at it and you say, I, I have no idea who that is. No idea what it would be like for this to apply to me in the faintest. And if your spiritual history enables you to see that God has never sent his spirit into your heart to work a miracle and bring your dead heart to life in Christ then please, and this is the point of all the diagnostics, please do not participate in Lent. Watch from a safe distance because the disciplines of prayer and fasting will not help you. They will harm you. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis describes charity, gospel love, by distinguishing two kinds of love. Need love, need love, and gift love. Need love, Lewis says, describes love for the kinds of things that I need to live. They have no necessary relationship to the kind of love that God is. They're directed towards me, my needs, my desires. Gift love, on the other hand, images the kind of love that God is. In gift love, unlike all forms of natural love, there's no need that needs satisfying, only a plenteousness that desires to give itself entirely to another. And the marvelous thing, Lewis says, is that when gift love comes into our lives, it doesn't vanquish those lesser loves, at least not necessarily. In fact, it makes a place for them. Let me try to illustrate what Lewis was saying. Gift love is charity. Love for the unlovable. Now, Christians say that this love is not native to any human being. We're lovers. We were created lovers in, in the image of God, but because of sin, we are broken lovers. 
The power to love, therefore, it needs to be renewed in us. And so this gift love, it can't be dredged up from within. It, it's got to come from God. It's got to come from outside of us. So it's like a river from God, which breaks into the hearts of broken lovers and carves out new pathways as it courses. Along the way, it floods the banks, drowning some of our old loves. But in doing so, it creates lush beds of vegetation where lesser loves, really for the first time, are able to flourish, to be enjoyed for that which they are and not to be extorted for, for the things that they can't offer. A good joke, a, a glass of bourbon, a, a friendship, our children, our marriage. The marvel of Christianity, Lewis says, is that Divine gift love doesn't replace these natural loves. It elevates them, even transforms them into modes of charity, into instruments of divine love. Now, our temptation as human beings will always be to make these natural loves primary and sustaining. I'm going to look to my work to define me, to my friends, to my marriage, to my achievements, to my children, but in doing so, I'm like a man kneeling around tepid little pools. And you can see in the background, he's dammed off the coursing river of divine love, refusing to allow it to, to, to carve new pathways in him. This is why Lent, which is such a great blessing to the Christian, is such a danger to the merely religious person. If I'm a religious person, if the power of the gospel has not sunk down into my life, if I'm a religious person, I find my life not in the gospel, but in my achievements or in my performance, in created things, natural loves, then when I pray and fast, it might look from the outside like Christianity. Because after all, I'm performing the motions one ought to perform in a coursing river of life, right? The problem is I'm not, in fact, in the river. Spiritually speaking, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like a man face down in the dust by his little pools, flailing his arms and legs as if to swim, never thinking that those motions weren't meant for dry land. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. To make the move from one to the other, from religion to the gospel, the man has got to get up. He must open the dam. He must face the risk of all his treasured loves being overwhelmed and displaced. He must allow the coursing river of God's love to carve new paths in his heart, drowning the old Adam and engendering new and unanticipated forms of beauty and of joy. And he's got to learn that he can't do this himself. He's like the blind man in our gospel reading. All he can do is cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he doesn't stop. He doesn't get up and go. 
He says it again. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus say to him? He doesn't say, your love has made you well. He says, your faith has made you well. You have put your trust in the right place. If you're a religious person, beware of Lent. Practicing it without love, you'll be like that man flailing on the dust. You'll have a lousy time and you'll wear yourself out. First, you need to come to the dam. Measure the risk. Understand that all your pools will be overwhelmed and some will be washed away for good. But if you'll open the dam and let the river in, if you will cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, then just, just watch the river flood your life with new life. Watch it carve a new course in the withered earth of your heart. Let it take up your flailing limbs and make of you the lover that you were created to be. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.